Well, I hope, like my family, you guys love what's going on with the Winter Olympics. The uh, first day that we could, we sat down, we watched a little bit of it, and in no time, my daughter Cassie, who's nine, looked at us and said, Dad, I want a snowboard. And in fact, there's a snowboard ordered from Amazon.com on its way because she wants to be a future Olympic snowboarder. (laughs) Uh, But what I love about the Olympics is Team USA is filled with athletes who have made tremendous personal sacrifices to compete for the ultimate prize, an Olympic gold medal. Uh, And one of the members of Team USA, who I read about this last week, just so inspired me. Her name is Jasmine Fenlater. She's a bobsledder for the U.S., the uh, two-person bobsled. And um, she was interviewed by the Miami Herald and the Boston Globe. They wanted to know what it cost, like the sacrifice she made to get to the Winter Olympics. Um, And so... I didn't even know the first thing about bobsledding. I kind of knew that it looked fun, but I didn't know, for example, that uh, this thing, this bobsled, weighs 400 pounds before anybody even gets in it. You know, 400 pounds, and they got to take off and run on ice and then jump in it. And the thing also is worth $150,000. So one oops and one crash, and and there goes that. (laughs) Uh, It's a mile-long track, and it's filled with twists and hairpin turns, and she can travel up to 90 miles per hour. So if you want to know what it's like to be a bobsledder, get in your car, go on the expressway, but when it's icy, take off your seatbelt, roll down the windows, and start turning real fast. All right, that's what it means to be an Olympic bobsledder. She had many opportunities to quit. She could have quit training in 2011 when her house was hit by Hurricane Irene. She could have quit when her mom's health declined. Her mom not only has lupus, but had a massive heart attack and a series of strokes. Her mom's partially blind, and she's in charge of caring for her mom. Uh, She didn't give up. We've got some pictures of Jasmine uh, also to show you. Somebody asked her how much it costs to train for the Olympics for the bobsledding event. She said she estimates it's about $80,000 a year, a year to train for this event. It's one of the most expensive sports to train for. So to to raise that money, she says, I've worked as a graphic designer, a restaurant manager, I've done babysitting, I've washed floors, I've cleaned toilets, I've walked dogs, I pretty much have done anything that I can. While training in Switzerland, she kind of ran out of money, and so she had to do her laundry in the bathtub because she couldn't even afford to go to the laundromat because all of her money was going towards this hope of Olympic gold. She said this, I'm making every sacrifice The glory of the journey is worth it for me. I only have this limited time now to push myself to the max. I'm making every sacrifice. She's basically saying it's worth it. And in this room, we have people who have made tremendous sacrifices for the Lord Jesus and for his mission. Uh, People in this room have sacrificed so much of their time to bring our church to this point to even launch our church. Uh, People in this room have sacrificed generously of their finances now and over the next two years. Uh, People in this room have given their very best of their skills uh, to make special services possible. And listen, Jesus talks to us about our sacrifice. Today we're going to meet a man who comes up to Jesus and has a conversation. Then we're going to hear the disciples in a conversation with Jesus. What we're going to find out at the end of this conversation is this. Jesus is worth every sacrifice we make for him in this life. He's worth it all. He's worth it all. 
And I hope this will be an encouraging message for you that whatever you have brought to the Lord, whatever you have given to Him over the past several years, He will honor you. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, and we'll get into God's Word together. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, we'll let Jesus talk to us about the sacrifices we make for Him. Now, as you go there, understand that one of the ways Jesus taught is he had these conversations with real people who had real questions. So uh, it's not like Jesus had everybody sit down and he gave a three-point message from an Old Testament text. This is a conversation, and it was a spontaneous conversation that came out of nowhere, and yet he used it to make a point about sacrificing for him. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, it says this, Behold, a man came up to him, that's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, Mark and Luke also record this story. And in the Gospel of Mark, it says that this man ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet. Okay, I'm going to act this out now. So so I'm the guy, and Jesus is over there. And he's just walking around with his disciples, and suddenly, out of nowhere, this guy runs up, falls at his feet, and, like, takes him by the sandal and says, Good teacher, what good deed must I do? To have eternal life. Do you know dramatic people? Do you have drama people in your life? They don't just do things. They do them with flair. This is one of those impulsive drama people. He doesn't just walk up. He runs up and he falls at his feet. Good teacher. What good deed must I do to get eternal life? In Luke's gospel, it says that this man is a ruler, which means like a synagogue official. So Today, it would be kind of like if Jesus was here today, it would be like maybe even one of our own elders, you know, like Ken, running up to Jesus and falling at his feet and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We have to understand, based on the description, that it's, it's a guy who everybody else kind of figured, he's already got it. Like, what's he doing asking? What does he need to be asking? Um, but he did ask. Here's the question, the first one. You can write this down. Question one. What must I do to get to heaven? That's what he's asking. Jesus, what must I do to get to heaven? Eternal life in this passage does mean to get to heaven, to get saved. And this guy, although he's got a lot going for him, is lacking confidence. So he runs up to Christ, asks him this question, and is very eager to get an answer. So in verse 17, it says this, And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. Uh, It says in Mark and Luke, no one is good except God alone. Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. It's God alone. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, I don't know what evangelistic training you've received, but Jesus doesn't do it by the book here. Okay, imagine if one of your loved ones who doesn't know Christ comes up to you and falls at your feet. And grabs your hand and says, what good deed must I do to get to heaven? What would you say? I'll tell you what you wouldn't say. You wouldn't say, keep the commandments. Would you do that? No, like (laughs) some famous, like (laughs) Billy Graham would be really upset if you said that. Ray Comfort, I mean, he would take you down. Keep the commandments. Like what is Jesus doing? Telling us, well, keep the commandments. Follow your Old Testament. Why would he say that to this guy? But before he said that, he asked him a question. So he answered the question with the question. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you ask me what is good? Why did you come to me? Why did you come to me? What can I give you that no one else 
See, so Jesus immediately turned the conversation to Jesus. Why did you come to me? There's only one who is good. Why did you call me good? There's only one who's good, and it's God. Jesus immediately starts chipping away at this guy's heart, and he's basically countering the questioner by saying, who do you really say I am? Why did you call me good? There's only one who's good. What are you doing coming to me? He's getting at his motives. He's getting at his heart. And before he even gets to any Bible teaching, he starts talking about himself. Who do you say I am? Why did you call me good? What brings you to me? This, this person, this, this guy, was looking for another list. He wanted another teacher in his entourage of teachers to teach him. He wanted Bible facts. And he thought Jesus could give him some more Bible facts to add to his checklist. What thing? What's the thing? What's the big one? How do I know if I've gotten that box checked? What must I do? And Jesus asked him, why did you call me good? Who do you think I am is basically what Jesus was asking. We observe three errors in this man's theology. He had a wrong wrong understanding of who Jesus was. He had a wrong understanding of his sin problem. He had a wrong understanding of the purpose of the law. He's fine with Jesus being a teacher to teach him, but what about a Savior to save him? What about a Lord to rule him? It's more than teacher, teach me. All right? And while he knew he had a sin problem, he thought he had solved it, or at least the download was 99% complete. Almost there. One teeny thing might be missing. Throw your box on my checklist. He had a wrong understanding of the purpose of the law. He thought if he kept all of the rules, he could get to heaven by them. But the Bible doesn't say that. So on verse 18, reading on, or verse 17, Jesus said, There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Follow your Old Testament. Verse 18, he, this is the the guy, said, Which ones? This is great. So (laughs) it's like, keep the commandments. And the guy's like, "Uh, Which ones? Did you have teachers when you were in middle school or maybe high schoolers, you have teachers where you get math homework and it's like, do problems one through 99. And you're like, ugh. And then they say, odd. And you're like, yes, homework just got cut in half, right? And then you have the teacher who's like one to 99 all. And you're like, oh, I hate this teacher. This guy's basically saying to Jesus, hey, like cut the homework in half. Like which ones? Like which are the biggies? Which ones do I need to keep? Give me the list, the list. Interesting response also. Jesus gave him a bit of a list. Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, So he lists commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, then jumps back to 5. All right, interesting. The second half of the Ten Commandments is more focused on your horizontal relationships with people. The first half is more you and God, no idols, right? Don't make a graven image. Or Okay, the second half is more kind of like you and other people. So Jesus starts listing them, but then he skips 10. Remember what 10 is? You shall not covet. Covet things. Love things. And Jesus goes up, 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 skips, and goes back to honor your father and mother. This guy responds by saying in verse 20, the young man, so we find out he's young, we find out elsewhere he's, uh, he's also a synagogue leader. So he's influential. He's young. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. So Jesus begins by listing the ones he's doing right. Do this, 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 this. And he's like, check. 
I'm rocking those. All these I have kept, he said. Listen, what do I still lack? Something's missing. Jesus loved this guy. He was an honest seeker. He really wanted to know. He knew something was missing. Check out this picture of a statue that they put up. Uh, This is a great depiction of a guy who's missing something. See that? It's a statue that, like, like, you know, half the guy's body is just torn. It's just a standing statue with a giant piece torn away. That's how the guy felt spiritually. I've done all those. Something's missing. What is it? I can't put my finger on it, but I know something's missing. Give it to me. What's the box that needs to be checked? Maybe that's how you feel spiritually. Something's missing in my life. I can't tell you that I have confidence with God. I don't know if I'm going to heaven. Something's missing. And that's what this guy was saying. What must I do to get to heaven? Jesus finally hits him with it. Jesus said to him in verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, do you hear that word? If you would be perfect, do you know you need to be perfect to get to heaven? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Go sell what you have, give to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me if you want to be perfect. Okay, question. Does Jesus really think that this man is deficient in his charitable giving? Like he, che- he checked his tax return and he said, well, your charitable giving is a little low. Go give more to the poor and then you'll be perfect. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. No. He says, go give what you have to the poor because you've been blessed. Come follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. It's the come follow me part that would make him perfect in God's court of law and that would give him treasure in heaven. But Jesus first makes a demand on his life. Go sell what you have, give to the poor, follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He's rich. He's loaded. Jesus says, go sell it, go give, come follow me. And the guy goes, All of it? No. No. He goes home. Good teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. I've done that. I've done that. I've done them all. Give your stuff away. It's your God. And come follow me. And I'll be your God. No. No. You're not worth it, Jesus. That's what he said with his choice. What an amazing opportunity. Can you, can you even fathom this opportunity? I mean, being on Team USA and getting a gold ring on your neck. Being in Jesus' inner circle. Getting in the Bible hearing a sermon straight from him, walking with him day after day after day, and being one of his, come follow me. You can be, you, Jesus turned some people away. Hey, go home. Tell everybody what I did for you. You're not getting in this circle. Okay, get out of the boat. This guy, he says, come on, let's go. You can be my follower. And he was sad. Oh, he was sorrowful. He went home, honey. It was an awful day. 
Why was it an awful day? Oh, I'm so sad. Why are you so sad? I got in the Bible. Got in the Bible? Yeah, I got in the Bible. Talk to Jesus. What did he say? He said, I got to sell everything, give to the poor, and come follow him. Oh, I'm so sad. Jesus helped this man to reach the end of his own personal self-righteousness, showed the glaring gap that remained, pulled the cover off of this man's true God, which was his stuff, and basically sent this man away, showing him that he had a different God and it wasn't Jesus. Sell everything you have, give, follow me. This is true for every one of us. Um, if we want to get to heaven, we must become a follower of Christ. and We must be willing to let anything go to be a true follower of Christ. Nothing keeps us from following Christ. That's who gets to heaven. You can't. The answer is you can't do anything to get to heaven. I must save you, Jesus says. So write this down. Question one, what must I do to get to heaven? Answer, no matter what you do, you cannot save yourself. You'll never be good enough. Follow me. Follow me. Jesus is worth any sacrifice because only Jesus can save you. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Guess what you can take as they put you in the casket and you go on to the next life? Guess what you show up there with? Nothing. You can't bring anything from this life into the next life. There's only two things the New Testament says can be stored up for you in heaven right now. It's either wrath or it's treasure. Treasure in heaven in this context symbolizes eternal life waiting for you. God's favor and his blessing forever. Wrath stands for his judgment. This man had wrath stored up in his eternal portfolio. And Jesus said, I can do something about that. But you've got to get rid of your idol, your God, your stuff, and come find a Savior. And he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't do it. No matter what you do, you can't save yourself. He loved his money more than his God. Being wealthy isn't a sin. His, his, his sin was that his money ruled his heart and directed his life and made Jesus not worthy of his loyalty because his money had it. When you think of love, you think of Valentine's Day, right? People go out of their way to make great displays of their love for another person. and They make sacrifices. It was Friday, by the way, so if you're getting the cold shoulder, guys, that's probably why. You forgot. <laughs> but one man didn't forget, and he's from Aurora, and what he did, his name is Tyler Morick. He spontaneously decided at 1 a.m. to surprise his fiancée by writing a message to her in the snow, a giant message. Check this out. Here's the message he wrote to her in the snow. This is an aerial helicopter shot that says, I love you, will you be my valentine? He stepped that out with his feet in knee-high snow. He started at 1 in the morning, and it took him four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. He decided in an instant to do it. Um, He walked about 14 miles, and he lost four pounds. (laughs) And, And... and then, in the, and then when he got to the end, he like crashed to the ground and made a snow angel and then crawled home because he was in such agonizing pain. Couldn't feel his feet. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because he wanted to show his fiance how much he loved her. So he sacrificed and endured. Now the rest of us guys are like, show off. <sighs> Flowers and candy would have been fine. Show off. But this guy made such an amazing display of love for his fiance and Jesus was asking this man for a tremendous sacrificial display of love for the person who came into this world to die on a bloody cross for him. And the guy's like, no, I can't do it. I'd rather sleep in. 
going to go home. He loved his money more than his God. He loved his sin more than his Savior. That's why he was not heading to eternal life. Uh, You know, when we love our sin more than our God, we're destined for eternal destruction. We think our sin is is our God. Our sin is going to provide for me. Sin is going to protect me. My sin is going to bring me peace and pleasure and love and joy. And it's my sin that's going to deliver all this and not my God. We treat our sin like it's a furry pet, right, that we've got tamed and it's going to deliver us all the goodies in life. When I think of how we feel about our sin, I think of this picture. Uh, It's a guy with his pet cat. I love what that, oh, tiger, and the tiger's like, oh, food. (laughs) The way we treat our sin and the way our sin treats us is like that. We say, oh, sin, I love you. You provide for me. You give to me. And the sin's like, I'm going to gobble you up and devour you and lead you to eternal destruction. This guy loved his sin more than his God. Well, the disciples were listening to this, so check out verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. Okay, so show me your face of of being greatly astonished. Ready, set, go. He just said what? They were greatly astonished. Who then can be saved? Rich, they thought he was blessed by God. Synagogue leader, they thought he was religious. This is a good guy. He's not getting in. Who then can be saved? Write this down. Here's the second question. Question two. Question one, what must I do to get to heaven? Question two, how does anyone get to heaven? How does anyone get to heaven? Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for that rich guy to get into heaven. Uh, Check this out. It's a picture of a camel. Imagine taking this camel and and then a teeny little needle with a little eye. And and even if Jesus had said a mouse, it would have worked. But he picked a camel. Try getting a camel through the eye of a needle. He said, yeah, that would be easier than getting that guy into heaven. Jesus walked over to the door of working my way into heaven and slammed it shut and barred it. No one is getting to heaven any other way. Listen, if this isn't Settled in your heart, settle it right now. Anyone of any nation, tribe, and tongue has only one way into the eternal presence of a holy God. The only way is through faith in Christ, the Savior King who came to this world. There is no other way. Either they hear the life-changing message of the gospel, they realize their need for a Savior, by faith they repent and they're saved, or they aren't saved. Any other way, maybe they can get two or three camel hairs through that eye of the needle, tops but they're not getting the job done any other way. And it's foolish to try, and it's futile to try. And if you, if you, in your mind, assume there might be some other way, or maybe God will allow them, and you cut the very nerve of urgency that is supposed to drive us to bring the gospel to the ends of the world, to save people from hell forever. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How does anyone get to heaven? Jesus said, this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Impossible. Any other person trying any other way is trying something that is impossible with man. But saving souls is possible with God. Write this down. Answer, question, how does anyone get to heaven? Answer, no matter who you are, Jesus must save you. Doesn't matter if you're rich or powerful or religious. 
Whatever else you have in your life, if you don't have Jesus, you don't have eternal life. Doesn't matter who you are, what you know, what you have, you cannot save yourself. You must trust him to do the impossible. Listen, this this is such an amazing moment in the history of our church to just stop and reflect on how faithful God has been. God has done the impossible. To find a church building in this region that we could buy and then to try and raise $500,000 by February 15th. And we even raised more than that because before December 1st, we had already raised $200,000. So the total amount that we've collected toward this uh, you know, is $800,000 towards this project. The fact that God could bring all that in and put us right in the center of our regional draw is impossible. He did it. He did it at just the right time in his way. And this is reminding us that God did the impossible from the very beginning. Our relationship with him started by him doing the most impossible thing he could ever do, and that's saving us and washing us clean of sin and promising us heaven forever. It's impossible, and he did it. You can't ask him for anything harder than what he did at the cross for you. That's it. He said yes to the biggest thing, the most impossible thing you could ever ask. Save my soul of all my sin forever and promise me a place in your presence for eternity. Done. If you put your faith in Christ, it's done. Everything else you ask from that point on is less, smaller, easier. Reminding ourselves that our relationship with Christ began by God doing the impossible. Reminding ourselves that when God does the impossible like this in a moment, that prompts us to go into his presence with more impossible things and say, with God, this is possible. I hope that you're greatly encouraged by what he's doing here, but I hope that you take that home with you into your prayer time. I hope that what he's done for our church increases your faith at home. Wow, if God can do that, if he can do that for our church, I'm going to start asking him for impossible things at home. Wow, if God did that at the cross and saved my soul and washed my sins away, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask other things of him. Because with God, all things are possible. Uh, this, is, uh, this last seven days in particular, but this last month, God has just for whatever reason decided to give me and Lauren this harvest of amazing things uh, for the church, for our home, different things. He's just decided to confine into one week. There are all these things that were stuck. In my prayer journal I wrote several months ago, this is stuck, this isn't moving, this needs to get done. I've seen no movement on this. And God's like, bam, 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 bam. It was like one of the best weeks of my entire life. If I could tell you all the other things that are going on, if we collected $1 last week, it still would have been one of the best weeks of my life. All right? This offering was one of several things God did, but I'll just share one of them with you now. Uh, we've been really stuck with our housing situation. When we bought our home back in 2000, uh, 2005, just outside of Wheaton, that's where I was a pastor out there, um, you know, the market was right at its height, and then phew, we bought it, and down it went in value. And I knew year after year, Lord, we're going to have trouble selling this house. If you call me out, you're going to have to sell this house. I prayed and prayed and prayed. And then when we got the assignment to come down here, we listed our house in the uh, leading up into fall of 2009. Um, our launch team prayed. We fasted. We did everything we could do to market the house. Uh, and God said no. said no, not going to sell it. Uh, in fact, we had an open house. And, and there Lauren and I were sitting on the couch. The house was clean. The candles were burning. The balloons were on the mailbox. And nobody showed up. Not even one person came to walk through the house. Just two depressed, lonely little Christians wondering whether God has forsaken them. 
sitting on the, Lord, we're stepping out to plant a church for you. We need to get down there. And God said no. And, and we launched the church in September. And I commuted down here 40 minutes, five days a week to come. And then on the weekends, we slept over at Lauren's parents' house, woke up Sunday, preached, then drove home. It was this giant burden that put a strain on us. And it's like, why wouldn't God do this? And then to top it all off, a woman from our launch team came up to us one day and said, guess what? We were going to sell our house and list it on Monday. And before we even listed it on Friday, a neighbor put a note in our mailbox saying, I want to buy your house. We didn't even have to list it. Glory to God. And I was like, get out of my church. Get out of my church. Like, God, you didn't have to list it. And here are your pastors doing this great thing for you. With man, it was impossible. What we experienced in the market was no different than what everybody else was experiencing. It was impossible. We couldn't sell it. So God sustained us. He hasn't answered that prayer yet, but he sustained us by bringing along a renter to rent that house. She's been, for five years now, she's been the world's best renter on earth. Uh, First of all, she's a single mom. Her husband passed away. Uh, They're not loaded with cash, okay? And, And yet using her, God, she gives us a whole year's worth of rent up front every year. Here's the whole year. And we're like, why do you do that? She's like, I just don't like writing checks. Okay, we got it all in the bank, day one. Huh. Like, who does that? God does that. She pays the whole year up front in one check. She's done it for five years now. So God sustained us there, and then he opened up a door for us to rent a house in Allsip. It was Lauren's dad's aunt who owned a home. She was declining and, uh, and she had to go to a home, and so she's got eight kids. The eight kids said, well, hey, why don't you rent this house for us, you know, and we think mom might live a year, and we'll even give you a little, you know, on the rent, we'll store some of it up if you ever want to buy the house. And so mom ended up living four years, four and a half years, and so then she just passed away recently, and I thought, what are they going to do? Like, we stayed in this house a lot longer than they thought. So eight kids, have you ever seen people try and divvy up an inheritance? Okay, it's like war, Eight kids all agreed that they wanted to bless us by giving us 20% down payment toward this house if we want to buy it. They said, yeah, if you want to buy this house, we'll gift you 20, 20% as a down payment. You know, we know you're, you're serving the Lord. We don't know these people. They're like family of family, and they're gifting us. Eight of them decided to gift us. God did that. He set it up in this economy, in this housing market, to make it possible for us to buy the house we're in. We could have never done this. With man, this is impossible. And this just rolled out in the last couple weeks. Even his timing that he would do this in this time is so wise of him. I don't know what it is in your life that you would say it's impossible. But two months ago, if you told me, yeah, you're going you're gonna to have a 20% down payment on your house, I'd be like, how? This economy? We already own another home we can't sell? If you had told me before we listed this house to rent that your renter was going to give you all the money up front every year, I'd be like, yeah, right. In your dreams, you know, and God does the impossible, okay? He did the impossible at the cross. He keeps doing the impossible when we call out to him. Jesus wants you to know, in times like these, this gives us the confidence to know, with God, all things are possible. Bring him your impossible requests. Well, Peter sat and listened long enough, and then he had to ask a question too. So verse 27, Peter has a gift for asking things that everyone's wondering. says this in verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
I love Peter. He says, the rich young ruler, he leaves and he doesn't, he doesn't leave anything. He just goes home. And Peter is listening. Who can be saved? No one can be saved. With God, it's possible. And then Peter's like, hey, we left everything that we have. What's in it for us? And I'm sure Jesus is thinking to himself, yeah, you left like boat and net. <laughs> you want it back? I'll give it back to you if you want. <laughs> we left everything and followed you. What will be in it for us? Write this down. Here's the final question. Is This is what Peter's asking. Is Jesus worth it? I left everything and followed you. You keep talking about how you're going to die. Are you worth it? He just asks him, are you worth it? I love that he asks him this, and I love that Jesus responded. Are you worth it? This is a question that will stick in the soul of every believer at times. It will lurk in the darkness of your heart. You will wonder if Jesus is worth it. Listen, high school students, listen. It's so easy to fit in. It's so easy to fit in. Why don't I just fit in and stay quiet? You're wondering if Jesus is worth it. Why don't I just fit in and stay quiet? Jesus, are you really worth it? Our Trinity students, you're wondering, why don't I just give in? And live it up. Other people are. It's a short time in my life to do this. Give in. Live it up. Other people aren't living for God. I'm just going to give in. You're asking if Jesus is worth it. Is he worth it if I give him my college years? Is he worth it? Those of you who are going through a trial or struggling in a relationship, you're wondering, I don't, I don't, why don't I just give up? I'm doing things the hard way and trying to honor God. I could say some things to these people and just get it over with. Why, am I, why don't I just give up and do it my way? Are you tempted right now to fit in or to give in or to give up? You're asking the same question Peter is asking. Are you worth it, Jesus? If I make this sacrifice to you, are you worth it? What's in this for me? Jesus responds by saying three things. Jesus said to them in verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He finally gets around to saying who gets eternal life. What must I do to get eternal life? He finally gets around to saying it. Write this down. Is Jesus worth it? Well, first, we're going to reign with Christ. He says when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne in the new world. New world means this world is broken. It's broken. It was dropped on the ground in Eden, and it broke. What's with all the suffering? What's with all the pain? How could a good God allow all this? No, the world was dropped. And it broke because of sin, and God's not the blameworthy cause of it. Have you ever broken anything? I broke a, I broke an iPhone. Broken iPhone. Check it out. Here's a picture of a broken something. You see that, and you're like, oh, it broke. Cracked screen. Oh, I need to go get a new one. I need a new one. Am I ready for an update? Can I go on? I need a new one. Hey, that's your world. It got dropped. It's broken. God's making a new one. In the new world, when the Son of Man comes... And restores all things. Son of man is an Old Testament title for Jesus. He's the coming ruler, rightful ruler of the entire world. In fact, the entire universe. 
Good teacher, why do you call me good? There's only one who's good. You don't know who I am, do you? I'm the rightful ruler of the entire universe, and I will come and reign on it. See, see, he went home and didn't hear that sermon because he wanted his money. And Jesus now tells his disciples who he is. Coming, new world, on a throne, you will rule with me. While this, this here sounds more Jewish in, in flavor when it comes to the sitting on 12 thrones, ruling 12 tribes, 2 Timothy 2.12 promises this to all believers. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. We will share somehow in his glorious rule over a new world in a new universe. I don't understand all that, but it sounds pretty awesome. Are you worth it? Are you worth my college years? Are you worth my high school relationships? Are you worth my obedience in a trial? Hey, you're going to reign with me when I come back and rule everything. Second, we will be repaid a hundred times any sacrifice. Write that down. We'll be repaid a hundred times any sacrifice. A hundred times is supposed to shock you. All right, like if you go to the bank and they're like, yeah, guess what? This is good news. Uh, Your $20,000 savings account has become $2 million. You'd hug the banker. If, if you got your house appraised and your $300,000 house appraised at $30 million, it's appraised at what? $30 million. <gasps> A hundredfold on the investment, it's supposed to shock you. It's a materialistic way of shocking you. Where's this rich young ruler who realizes he walked away from a hundredfold on his investment in the Lord Jesus? He puts it in materialistic terms. 1 Corinthians 3.14, we'll put it on the screen, makes it clear. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Some scholars and Christians try and downplay this. Oh, I don't need a reward. Jesus is my reward. As, As long as I'm in heaven and I get to... Praise him forever. What more do I need? But the Bible is really clear. Your obedience will be blessed. I don't know what rewards forever looks like, but it's described as either possessions that are lavishly bestowed upon you or authority or responsibility. I don't know what it means, okay? But heaven's not like this cloud city where you float around with wings like a force of energy. Okay, there is a new earth and there is a new world and there are new responsibilities and ways to work for Christ and worship him, all right? You're going to have things assigned to you. Somehow, what you do in this life, the sacrifices you make in this life, are directly tied to your eternity. I don't get it. But Jesus wants to tell you in advance that he's got some things to give out waiting for you at the other end. He wants you to be ready for that because he wants to lavish rewards on you for your faithfulness. Wow. We'll be repaid a hundred times any sacrifice. Is Jesus worth it? Well, you're going to reign with him forever. Are you worth it? Well, I'll give you a hundred times anything you sacrifice for me here. Are you worth it? Here's the last one. Well, we'll live in heaven forever. You'll get to be with me forever. Who gets to heaven? Who gets to heaven? It says, you who have followed me. You who have followed me. You're just a believer in Christ. You can't earn it. And Jesus goes on to say, but the last will be first, the first will be last. He just wants to clear up the notion that it's a paycheck, that, that somehow, you know, you, you're going to like get what you, it's God's generosity that he lavishes on you. And listen, there are some people in this life, you're going to be shocked at how God pours out his abundant blessing on them forever. Maybe they haven't been as a Christian as long as you have. Maybe they've only been a Christian for a short time, a couple months, and they get a better eternity somehow in some way than you. 
The first will be last, the last will be first. It's a judgment based on God's grace, but it's somehow tied to your sacrifices for Christ in this world. We will live in heaven forever. We'll be repaid a hundred times any sacrifice. We'll reign with Christ. Are you worth it? We've left everything to follow you. Are you worth it? Listen, Jesus is worth every sacrifice you can make. Whatever you choose to devote to him in this life, he will repay you. Whatever you leave behind to follow him, he will honor you. He will honor your every sacrifice. You will regret nothing you give to him or his kingdom in this life. You will regret no sacrifice of time or of money or of skill that you have made for his kingdom. When you get to heaven, you will not regret anything you have laid at his feet. Anything. And let me challenge you with one last, with one last visual. At the end of a great Olympic race, what you see shows the heart and the devotion of these athletes. Check out this picture. I love it. This is what it looks like to cross the finish line. They sacrificed everything for a medal that will perish. And I want this to be, God wants this to be you at the end of your life, having poured out and spent everything on Christ who's coming back as king to reign. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for answering this question that lingers in our hearts. You are worth it. Thank you for those in this room who have so sacrificed of their lives over the last several years to make ministry happen here. Thank you for our leaders. Thank you for our servants. You're worth what they have sacrificed. Thank you, Lord, for those who have given tremendously, sacrificially to the offerings here. Lord, some... While maybe they have given a smaller amount, you know the sacrifice was great. And Lord, some took risks over the next two years with their pledges, and they don't know how they're going to actually give all of that. Bless them in this life and in the next. My prayer is that you will reward us, Lord, as we trust you. But we know it's all of your grace. We can do nothing to earn your favor. You poured out your life on the cross for us. You are the coming, reigning, ruling king of all. We worship you and we trust you and we thank you that you would share your rule with us and that you would promise us blessings. We are just your servants, O Lord. We pray your blessing upon our church as we continue to make tremendous sacrifices so that the gospel can go forward. Bless us, O Lord, and encourage us in your name. Amen.